good afternoon, morning, evening. Uh, this is Manny Jules from the First Nations Tax Commission with Greg Richard and our good friend from the Naitahu and the South Island of New Zealand, uh, Tamari. Good evening, or uh, is it is it evening morning. or morning for you, Tamari? Morning. <laughs> it's morning. Uh, just about, just about ten o'clock in the morning here. Oh, okay. I always forget. I always forget, and then you're a day ahead too, which is adds to the further complications. Uh, how have you been? Oh, we're um, we're fine in this country. The um, our village is good, and the um, the country's good. the The virus is is pretty much removed here, but there's nothing coming in or out, so there's no one to talk to other than us. <laughs> Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, about the Naitahu. And then we can get into a little bit about uh, COVID-19 and how you've been coping and, uh, and the tribe. Sure. Um, my name is Tamari. So um, greetings to everyone, First Nations in Canada. The um, I'm the um, customary head for my village at home, Tuahibi, which is in North Canterbury. Uh, our tribe is Naitahu, which is the largest tribe in the South Island, and its boundary is pretty much the South Island, except for the northern portion. We, um, our village has 18, no, our tribe has 18 villages um, who are all members of a tribal board, parliament, that we created in legislation in 1996. And our settlement came in 1998. Um, so that's who we are, really, but we're a tribal corporation. But un underneath that, we are essentially a tribe of kin, closely related from our village right down to the south, further north. That's how we operate. Um, and we're building our economy, which is interesting because we're learning a lot from First Nations and yourself, Manny. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's... That's incredible to have uh, the kind of working relationship we've developed. Uh, we we first met, uh, I think it was in Bozeman a number of years ago, and uh, yeah, we I went to the the meeting, uh, you know, on on purpose to listen to you, and uh, was blown away by you know all of the activity uh, that that you've been able to undertake and after the settlement, uh, you know, it's just been an mm. incredible. Uh, an inspirational story, and particularly after the the uh, 2011 uh, earthquake, and how you, how you helped uh, restart the the economy in in uh, in New Zealand, and that's one of the things we're going to have to be thinking about here in Canada, and obviously and in, in globally about how Indigenous people are going to participate in in the economy uh, post COVID. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's really interesting. We, um, for our tribe in Christchurch, South Island, uh, we had a mosque killing last year, and I thought that's the end of a bad decade. And of course, the COVID things come through. So, I think what we've done as a tribe is, following the earthquakes, we have been involved in a lot, but we've learnt a lot more. Uh, what we know from the economy in the South Island, right through New Zealand is that um, the country and finances are going to be a problem. 
and no one's got enough. So we're all going to have to participate. Uh, the government right down to local regional councils want relationships with us because investment needs to go into infrastructure. And we're all pretty clear that no one can do it by themselves. The council certainly can't, the crown can't, and the tribes can't. So we've all just been finishing off rounds of agreements, signing off strategic plans. But what we haven't done yet, and this is why it's so important talking to you guys, is how do we put institutional economics frameworks, arms and legs, operational plans to the strategies we've signed off? And I think that's where the challenge will be. Hmm. How do we make it work? That's abs yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. That's one of the things we're we're having discussions with the federal government about is what kind of uh, further institutions we require to participate in the rebuilding of of the economy. And, and from reading a lot of the the news reports uh, from New Zealand, it seems that you know initially uh, I was really afraid when they were coming out with some of the initial projections about how that would affect. Uh, uh, the Maori people of of New Zealand, uh, you seem to have dodged a bullet. Uh, can you take us through what what happened after the lockdown in in March and up to to now? I, I thought it was interesting. I guess you know what what needs to be needs to be understood is that New Zealand's about five million, so it's it's a small team. So. I think we had good leadership from the prime minister, but also um, the tribes just went to what they were. <laughs> if you know what I mean, we just stopped talking to yeah. others and kept to ourselves. Um, our, our village was, was pretty tight, so they knew what to do, which was keep to themselves. The families knew how to look after themselves because we all have food and no one's going to go hungry. Um, we did have a couple of problems with families living in the cities who just don't know our behaviours anymore. But I think because New Zealand's essentially small and we, we still have communities, the communities were fairly solid. Um, and we knew how to look after each other. But I do think anything longer than the period we had, which was about six weeks of hard slog, um, it, it would have tested us. Just in terms of uh, individual families and the, the tensions within them, but we got through. Yeah, one of the, one of the interesting stories when I when I first uh, went down uh, to uh, mm. to visit the the tribe, one of, one of the delicacies we had was the titi bird, and uh, yeah. I get I was reading because of the COVID. Uh, there might be a shortage. Has there been a shortage of of the the titi bird in? in the South Island? Well, it was interesting because if there was one thing, it was actually during the season of eeling and mutton birding, uh, many. So for the listeners, uh, a mutton bird is a sort of share water that we get starting in April. Um, so when the, the lockdown came, there were questions about why the tribe should be listening to this when, um, you know, we have to go out and get our customary foods. We could have pushed, and I doubt if the Crown could have done anything with it, um, but there was the period when lockdown finished, everyone rushed down south. The fishing boats were full, the helicopters were working, but our family didn't get down there. But um, I tell you, mm -hmm. the, the birds were fat, 
and the krill on the ocean was um, substantial. So it was a pretty good year all around. It, yeah, wow. I, we noticed the environment was different. I don't know what you guys saw, but we saw a cleaner, healthier environment for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, well for us. It's for us here in BC. It's been just rain, rain, and I'm just not used to that. Yeah, so it's been yeah. a little bit colder than usual. And what people are projecting is that it'll be better for us because over the last uh, decade we've had uh, really lots of wildfires, and so people are hoping that yeah. maybe this year we'll escape uh, a wildfire season. But uh, uh, I think I think it'll be good for the berries. You know, a lot of the Saskatoon bushes are getting full, and a lot of the other berries that uh, we go and harvest around this time of the year is going to be. I think the, the, it's going to be bountiful. Uh, one one of the things you were mentioning a little bit earlier uh, was about the tourism industry, and that's another thing that mm. uh, uh, we we when we visited, uh, I guess the the southern part of the territory you know the bungee jumping and the jet boating and i was reading that that uh, that uh, you know aspect of the business has really taken a hit well it's interesting because they did take a hit um and this is really really where the economic issue came in um because our tribe actually has at least in legislation a an interesting relationship with the department of conservation and we had argued for years that we have particular consent rights on the Department of Conservation lands, which is huge. Um, and we've always had a contested relationship with the department. Now, when the industry came back, they were in trouble in tourism because, you know, there's, it was just been wiped with no one in the country. But what the minister did is she wiped all of the consents for the tourism industry which was interesting. All the operators had their consents wiped, which is what our tribe had been argued for for quite a while. And it tells us how weighted the Western economy is. So when they when they're in trouble, they get their consents wiped. When our tribe said, actually, we have a treaty right to these consents, regardless of the department, um, it's always been contested. But we, we're heading off to court anyway. Yeah, and you were mentioning also... Uh... In, the, in another discussion, you may be uh, trying to deal with the whole issue about water. Can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about the struggle you've got uh, for water rights? Sure, uh, Manny. It's right on the... Um, everything's in draft mode and the, the train is on the track, so to speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we've had our legal yes. team, academics, and everyone go through this. Um what we know is the Crown cannot own water because under English law, it couldn't. So that's fairly clear. The Crown understands it can't own water, but uh, the tribe has a clear view that we... Our tribe is interesting. In the legislation of 98, the Crown fairly well confirmed our customary rights, our chieftainship over the land. Rangateratanga, sovereignty it's called and um we'll be asserting that before the crown and but it goes down to the three points that you guys have argued which is title to fresh water regulatory authority and fiscal authority and it's interesting how we have to reshape the argument internally amongst our tribe and with everyone else as well so ownership title 
is right there at the front. There'll be a lot of events happening before the, the election, Manny. Yes. And that's that's in September. Since it, wow, if you follow New Zealand politics, the um, the leader of the opposition came in about six weeks ago, 53 days ago, after a, a, an internal coup within his party. He resigned yesterday. And we got a new leader for the opposition party tonight. Uh, sorry, last night within 12 hours so it's, and she's a woman so there'll be two um yeah. leaders contesting for the election fascinating how's your government going it's a, it's a minority government situation here uh, we've been busy uh with with our strategy trying to uh, get the government to uh, pass legislation for our concept of an infrastructure institute and i i think we're getting a lot of traction for that but, uh, you know, the events in the United States have really uh, taken hold here in Canada as well with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know what happened in Minneapolis-St. Paul and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, you, you can see uh, the ripple effect here in Canada, not only with, you know, uh, the murdered missing women inquiry, but uh, looking at how uh, the police have treated the uh, First Nations uh, historically as well as what's happening, you know, on a daily basis in a lot of the urban centres. Yeah, we saw the videos in the, the releases. It's interesting, it's, it's ripples are coming through here. Yeah, I saw, I saw one of the Hakas and I guess, it, I don't know if it was Wellington or Auckland uh, in support of Indigenous rights and Black Lives Matter. The reaction in this country has been interesting. The um, there hasn't been a strong reaction against the inherent racism within New Zealand. There's actually been a good dialogue on how we um, engage on these issues. I haven't seen anything like in the United States when it's just reactionary. Um, here, people are willing to talk, and change isn't all that difficult to accept here. And I think it's because of the earthquakes and everything else that have happened and people know the world's changed. There's just not the resistance to a good discussion, if you understand what I mean. Yes, yes. And I think I think that's, you know, that's the critical turning point, I believe, is you've got to be able to open for, for dialogue, which ultimately leads to fundamental change. But ultimately, you've got to have you know, n not just uh, s good slogans, but you've got to have good legislation, you know, and yep. uh, to, to implement a lot of the concerns. You know, and, and, and it really, in my, in my view, it's always been an economic uh, argument uh, that, you know, that has really uh, kept us un under wraps, uh, you know, just as an example on, uh, you know, statistics uh, here in Canada and the United States, we weren't part of, uh, you know, the, the census da data gathering uh, because it, we were a government liability. And so the, the fewer indigenous folk, uh, the, 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 the less the liability. And the fact we didn't pay tax as well, uh, so it really didn't matter. Uh, but now, uh, as a result of, you know, you know, Black Lives Matter and all of the, the discussion surrounding that, I, I think that you know, it's it's good to have the discussion, but at the same time, it it can't be just uh, about slogans. There has to be fundamental change, and and so, but you know, one yeah. of the things that 
been been really disturbing for me is what's happened in the Navajo reservation, but also what's happening in Brazil uh, with the president uh, of Brazil just, uh, you know, vetoing uh, funds that would go to indigenous people and in particularly uh, in the in the Amazon region of Brazil, where the majority of indigenous people live. Yeah, we've been watching that too. What's what's going on on the Navajo reservation? Uh, well, yeah. it's I I think it's you know really uh, a reflection of the 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 relationship that that uh, the tribes have with not only with the federal government but also with the state governments. Uh, when we co-sponsored a, a tribal meeting in Washington a, a, a few years ago, uh, I can't remember mm-hmm. when it was. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the state lobbyists was saying, you know, that they would never give up tax jurisdiction or, you know, compacting with tribes, which virtually takes away fifty percent of the income from the tribes. And now, because of you know COVID. Uh, the, the the revenue streams that the tribal governments have been able to garner from, uh, you know, casinos and and the like have just dried right up, and so it's yeah. you know it's left them, you know, so uh, uh, dependent on the federal government, and then to get the funds out to the tribes, you've got to have federal legislation, and that's been slow in coming. Uh, you know, in, for the for the Navajo and for all of the other tribes. So, a lot of the tribes uh, in the United States have just decided to block off, you know, all roads uh, leading into their their re- reservations just to prevent uh, COVID uh, from taking place. But, you know, the Navajo reservation, 16 million acres. Yeah, just uh, yeah. a sad, sad story. Uh, just uh, you know. And it's just a reflection on, you know, how colonization has affected us and how we've got to fundamentally change uh, how we work, you know. Greg, do you have any thoughts or questions uh, you wanted to? Just to put it in perspective, you know that um, it's $15 billion that uh, that uh, Indian casinos were taken in in the United States, like $15 billion. And that's a big hit for anybody to take, let alone them. And just uh, yeah, yeah it shows you the amount. dangers of a reliance on one yeah. single industry. Yeah, and it didn't apply to all of the tribes either. Mm. I mean, you wonder how that's going to come back. I mean, I wouldn't go to a casino. It looks very uh, dangerous to me. However, there was that case in Oklahoma that was pretty interesting. Oh, you know, I, they take uh, I, I, roughly roughly half the state is now a reservation. Yeah, about yeah, three fifths of the of the state of Oklahoma's Indian Reserve. Have you been following that, Tamari? We have been, and um, yeah, it's it's been interesting watching the casinos, which is why I think you need a balanced portfolio. Um, and we've got five. The tourism did take a hit here. No one's coming in. But it's been interesting that um, Gabe and I took a holiday two weeks ago. Um, and we took we took a week off in Auckland. And it was great. I'm, I'm just wondering whether you need to go overseas all the time. It was good just traveling around your own country. 
But um, you, you can't, we know ourselves, you can't rely on one source of revenue. So, you know, you need your, your investments and a diverse portfolio on how you manage oh. your revenue. Yeah, that's a, that's that's what COVID has really exposed is is you know you you need a diverse economy to be able to survive and you also need a good credit rating, and credit comes from having a you know a jurisdictional base, particularly with tax. Which I, I think is where we're all going to in the South Island because the local government is required to have relationships with us, and. Um, We've signing off the strategic plans and we've signed off on partnership in a whole bunch of areas, but you know, which is why the course that you guys have is so important on how we negotiate these agreements and put some, um, the service level agreements, you know, it's the idea and it's implementation. That's where we're weak at the moment. And that's where we need to engage with first nations, Kamloops and yourselves, many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, you know, this is, it's uh, one of the most uh, dynamic areas of, of uh, our relationship is how we can exchange information amongst ourselves and how we can strengthen the, one another's economy. One, one of the things I am looking forward to is, uh, you know, the discussions that we've been having uh, uh, for the last little bit with the, the Bank of Canada and then the, also with the, the Bank of New Zealand looking at having an international uh, conference. Uh, I guess it'll be by Zoom or some other means uh, sometime this year or early next year, uh, you know, on how Indigenous uh, people have got to be a fundamental part of the economy. Uh, that's that's a really exciting uh, take on on the work that we you know that wouldn't have happened if we didn't start working together a few years ago. Well, it's interesting you should um, say that, Manny. I just sent you a text. We've got some really interesting news going on there. Um, uh, because it will be about accessing funds other than the banks. You know, you know, just other sources of revenue other than the traditional banks. Most of our banks are Australian. And um, I think if there's one thing we've learned over this, it's um, your own national tribal sovereignty over your banking systems, financial systems. Oh, well, that's critically important. What? Yeah, well, we've got our uh, First Nations Finance Authority and rate uh, I think, Greg, when was that? About two or three weeks ago, we had a a, a bond. Uh, I think it was about it was the largest bond we had, uh, which sold out uh, in in very very fast. Anyway, Greg, do you have any? Yeah, that was just a couple of weeks ago. They, had, I think, their uh, their outlook was rated positive at the time as well, which is kind of a good sign. Yeah. Yeah, I was curious so, about the water you know, case, to tell you the truth. Like what yeah. exactly is at stake? Is I understand it's a customary right, but is that is it a right of use or is it a right of ownership? Well, it's it's quite interesting. The um, there's a lot of so in theory, no one owns water in this country, but of course the crown is talking for itself. It can only talk for itself. So the crown does not own water, but 
In fact, what's getting traded are use rights and consent rights, and it's huge. It's a big industry. And I think that, well, the tribe will be inserting itself into that argument because we will be arguing a customary right, but essentially the argument will be um, all of these rights are customary because there's no other right really. But we're going to have to figure out what really are the rights that Pakia or, you know, different sectors of the industry have. They say it's a use right, but I do wonder whether they have a market right. And I think we're going to have to come up with new terms for what actually is the case. I suspect what they have is more than a use right. They have an industrial use. So what's the difference, you know, what's the line between a use and, a, and an industrial use? They have a commercial right and they have a, um, a market. Is it a market right that they're talking about? All these things need to be codified. Um, because the tribe also has examples of trading, selling water, doing all those types of things, which is why I think the tribe must assert its customary authority over water and have the title to water. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's not unheard of in this country. One of the tribes up north, which is the Tuhoi, and one of our, um, and the minister at the time, the Attorney General, Chris Finlayson, removed crown title off the land to this you know to the two hoi people's land in the settlement really interesting thing crown title was removed crown title was removed yep and on top of that there was a lot of legislation that was removed off the land so the national parks land use you know a whole bunch of fundamental legislation was removed from their, their tribal territory, which is fascinating, if you think about it. That is fascinating. And do, yeah. is, do you do you have a recognized, is your government, you said you had a parliament, but is your government formally recognized? Well, here's the interesting thing. In the Act, um, there's, there's three features of the Treaty of Waitangi. The two critical is that the Crown has sovereignty or government, the, the right of governance. In return, the Crown confirmed the right of chieftainship or self-government over the tribes. Now, in our settlement, and we're the only tribe to have had this, the Crown actually says it recognises our Rangatiratanga, which is really our chieftainship over our territories. And um, it's been there for 20 years, but we've never figured out how to put a government structure there, which is why we're talking to you I think, and First Nations. You know those economic institutions, political institutions that you have. We want to develop and codify. Um, so, do you want me to explain more, or? No, I think it's I think it's useful. So next, um, in the spring, the um, the Minister of Conservation has pretty much said no one. She said that white baiting which is a small fish our people get and New Zealanders get, it will be regulated, you know, coming up for the spring season. It's been a big issue amongst us. And of course, what our tribe down here said is, that's fine, Minister, um, but we're going to carry on doing what we've done every year and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. So what we need to do now is um, codify how we're going to do it. And we'll just maintain, it. we're just going to continue. We're going to confirm in a tribal manner our customs 
and I don't think the Crown will be doing anything. They vacated jurisdiction and left it to you, in other words. Or am I oversimplifying? I'm sure I am. Well, they created jurisdiction, didn't know what they really surrendered, and we have to um, codify it. So you're right. No one saw it. No, no one saw it back then. Um, it's, it's funny, but it's there. I've never heard of this before. Kind of the opposite of the problem we've had, where we had overlapping jurisdiction. The other thing in the Act is the Crown is required to cooperate with us. Uh, and we're taking that seriously because our view is cooperation means more than um, consultation and any other mechanisms the Crown has. So it's really about us now instituting our own mechanisms. Yeah, that is That is a lot different than consultation, that's for sure. And customary rights, are they vested in this parliament you were talking about? Or is that still unclear? It's unclear. It's vested. It, the tribal say it's vested in the villages and the tribal chiefs. So that's where the customary rights will sit. Uh, and we're just on the brink working with First Nations on holding that course, those courses, Manny. I think the first one's in September and starting to codify those systems. So we're already heading there. Um, a, a good example is we had a meeting with the local government recently. How do you bury your dead, Manny, over in First Nations? Do you, do you have to have a cemetery or do you do what you want? Well, we've we've always had, uh, you know, burial sites. And usually it was the easiest place to dig, of course. And uh, right yeah, now yeah. we have a formal cemetery on, on the reserve where where our people are, are buried, but individuals uh, make a choice. Uh, my uncle uh, made a choice to be buried on his property, and my first cousin's going to be buried on, on his property, and nobody's really objecting to to that as well. And and some folks are actually, you know, there was one uh, uh, good friend of ours from Lillooet. He, he was cremated and had his, traditionally cremated and had his uh, ashes buried or you know, uh, spread uh, on on this mountain that he felt uh, a kinship with. And it's only recently, um, I think last month, we just said to the council, we're not going to get you permission for a new cemetery because our one's just about full, Manny. Um, we'll be doing what mm -hmm. we want on our own lands and we won't be asking for permission. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They looked a bit worried and um, they said, oh, can you talk to us about it anyway? <laughs> So we will, we will out of manners, we'll consult with, they yes, can consult yes. with us. <laughs> but um, we're not asking about that stuff anymore. Yeah. But those little things yeah, well, of, of assertions, custom, we're going to take in a, in a bigger way. Yeah, I think, I think that's what we have to do. You know, it is, it is really interesting, you know, for the longest time, like the the Catholic cemeteries, uh, they wouldn't allow heathens to be buried in there, and then sure. uh, you know we just we said this is ours, you know we can bury whoever we want in within our graveyard, you know. So all of that, uh, you know, is subject to our ultimately our jurisdiction. W one of the things, uh, Tamari, I've been you know I've been thinking about you a, a lot lately because of uh, the recent uh, DNA linkage between the Maori and the, uh, and the, and yep. the, 
I guess the South American that we, have you been following that as well? Yeah, I saw that um, connection. I'm not surprised. Um, there's always been a suspicion, and it's good to see the DNA confirm it, especially around there. Um, the Marquesas is an interesting area, Easter Island. Yeah, it's not surprising. Mm -hmm. We had the Easter Island people visit us two years ago, um, and they came. What was interesting is we could understand their language easily. It didn't take much. Um, and it's not surprising that there's tight connections there about 1200, 1250. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And I, I can't remember where I saw the, uh, it was a kite, but it was the, the story about the eagle coming over uh, from from the west uh, to, I don't know if it was to the Easter Islands or to, uh, you know, to, to New Zealand. Uh, and it was the form of a kite uh, of an eagle. Is that is that linked to you know in in the oral tradition? We have the birdman tradition here, uh, mm -hmm. where our mm, there's a there's an odd song that talks about um, our ancestors coming from well all of our ancestors come from the east and the traditions, but there is a birdman tradition here strong based on the eagle. But we had an eagle here as well. Um, I think what our people found were the cultural similarities between um, between Polynesia and those border South American tribes around, is it Peru, Chile? Yeah, and they the did find Ecuador. cultural similarities. Ecuador, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been an issue at the back of our mind, and we're not surprised. Yeah, I, 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 I thought that there was some discussions about it quite, quite some time ago, particularly with the sweet potato and, you know, the, the words are very similar. And our connection, of course, uh, you know, is uh, there are only, you know, four different strains of uh, DNA throughout uh, North and South and Central America. And uh, a while ago, there was a DNA analysis between the the uh, I guess it would be the Salishan people, and there was a close connection between the Salishan and and uh, you know the the seafaring people that went down. Because uh, one of the sus suspicions we had is that we followed the the uh, Pacific coast all the way down to uh, Chile, and uh, yeah. you know there were there were studies or individuals have done it within a couple of years, and so we always suspected that that's one of the routes that we took was along the Pacific coast as opposed to, you know, just walking all the way. So uh, for, for me, it was just, uh, I had a little smile and thinking that, well, we are, we are related uh, throughout the Pacific and uh, made me feel good. It's, um, you, you know, what's interesting about all that, Manny, is you can track it down to a couple of people at a particular time in history, you know? And um, and I know that because of the, the water remnants left in the teeth, you can track down to the islands in the area that our ancestors came from. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I think it's interesting. And um, But the academic studies that always disputed that, it's interesting what your instinct tells you, you know? Yes. And then it's been yeah. confirmed with DNA. 
Well, and, 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 and it's always the melding of science and the, the oral traditions and the traditions we've got. You know, for us, it was it goes right back to the Delgamuk uh, court case, which was handed down in 1997. Uh, up until that point, oral testimony wasn't allowed in the Canadian courts. And the... Uh, uh, the court case. Uh, one of the one of the aspects of the court case was was our oral tradition, and in particular, some of the studies or oral stories uh, was about grizzly bears slapping a side of a mountain, and uh, right. that was really an an earthquake that covered a village, uh, and uh, in Gitsan Wet'suwet'en territory, and they found that that was forty five hundred years, and so because they were able to meld the oral tradition with the scientific, uh, you know, analysis that was done, it was proven that that those kinds of stories can last multi-generations. And, uh, you know, there's, it's more than just a kernel of truth, it is the truth. And so for the first time, it opened up uh, oral tradition as, as a fundamental part of our, our court cases here in Canada. And of course, that's set an in international precedent as well. Which is what we're doing with the water. Um, it's been interesting because we have, we have our traditions that's going to be a strong part of our evidence. But I think the tribe's also gotten on the front foot with its. Um, we're using a lot of science on this one because we want to go to the courts with an answer. Um, because water is a problem. How it's allocated, all of those types of things need to be done. And we've got some strong science from um, really around the world including the Netherlands, the universities, and um, and Stanford we've, we've used. So um, I think we're in a strong position. We're not necessarily intimidated by science anymore, and it's just another tool for our tribe to use. Is there a lot of hydro production in New Zealand? Yes, there are. So I had the weekend um, going through the inland lakes, and looking at the hydro production, and that's where the issue is, Greg, uh, will be for the, you know for our inland tribes, and that's where they'll they'll be focusing their attention, hydro production, um, but also what those dams do, which is it's fascinating how the white economy slates everything, weights it in their favour. So, um, you know, for the dams, they essentially destroy traditional habitats customary fishing spots and as a payoff what they do is they create channels a uh, channel uh, sorry channels and everything you know for the new flow of water but they stock it with salmon which is fine but that's essentially the white economy in New Zealand you know so you'll have these channels full of salmon and recreational fishermen go there and you know get their salmon and you'll have all these dry riverbeds, which is where our people used to get their eels. And it's just, it's fascinating how people are blind to their own racism. <laughs> yes. How the white yeah. economy <laughs> locates it to themselves. Yeah. Well, water here in uh, Canada, you know, is, is a very important issue as well. And that's one of the things that, yeah. you know, in, in the long term, we've got to deal with as well. Here in Shushwap country, we have, uh, uh, for a while, we were part of the discussions surrounding the uh, Columbia River, which is an international treaty between uh, Canada and the United States. And on the yep. American side, uh, 
they virtually killed the the salmon industry, which was a big part. Obviously, was a big part of our not only diet but a part of our economy. And uh, yeah. as a result of of uh, the the treaty coming up for renewal, initially we weren't invited uh, to be part of the discussions between Canada and the United States. And then uh, uh, one of our representatives, uh, Nathan Matthews, was in at an international meeting in Washington right when the, when the shutdown happened in in the middle of March. So he was stuck in Washington for a little while, uh, talking mm-hmm. about our water rights. Uh, but we've got three major uh, rivers that start in 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 our territory: uh, the the Columbia River, the Fraser River, and the Thompson River, and all of them are were major. Uh, salmon uh, spawning uh, uh, grounds and uh, a big part of the economy and and now some of our salmon are are going extinct uh, because of overfishing and uh, so it's always a struggle to maintain that that aspect of preservation uh, within the traditional territories the jurisdiction and also the regulatory regimes that are required to make sure that all of those work together because, uh, you know, one of the things I find interesting here in Canada is that our water rights are held by Her Majesty and Right of Canada in provincial uh, land, land title systems, and that really isn't, isn't where they should be held. Uh, they should be held in, within our own institutions so that when discussions happen, they... Is that Canadian law or was it part of British law? How did that evolve? Uh, well, it it start it started, uh, you know, with uh, with British common law, and and then it evolved here in in Canada and and in in the United States, and so with, you know, I, I was just watching a TV program about the the salmon in in Scotland, which uh, you know was at one time pretty well world renowned, but now it's just a catch and release. Uh, but with with us, you know, it's a food fishery. Uh, it's yep. one that it's a it was a very fundamental part of the economy. Uh, but we were legislated out of uh, that aspect of commercial fisheries, and it wasn't until the west coast and the extreme west coast that I mean, you know, the ocean faring uh, tribes here in British Columbia maintained, uh, you know, the the right for them to be able to catch the salmon. With us here in the interior, we were forbidden from catching and, and selling salmon, and it wasn't until we started having those discussions with uh, 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 the Department of Fisheries and Oceans after the Marshall decision, uh, where we can catch and sell salmon, uh, you know, ourselves, and and that was that's just recent. Uh, so the fisheries uh, and water. Uh, you know, are 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 linked and and they're a fundamental part of the Canadian economy and and anything that uh, you know is is economic. Uh, you know, we were we were shut out of and it's that just as you were saying, Tamari, it's part of that systemic racism that people don't even think about. Uh, that's there and it's inherent in 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 colonization and it makes. You know the, the the colonial governments really colorblind to to what's happened to their, you know, to, as a result of their own laws, and they then they turn around and start blaming us for for being the problem when in fact, 
uh, as I've been pointing out recently, uh, because of the the recent debates that this is, you know, this isn't uh, our our doing. This is a result of, you know, systemic racist laws that have been embedded in the Indian Act uh, since the the formation of Canada. For the course, Manny, we're we're just getting some photographs and shots of, um, you know, just to show our students when you come onto our reserve. Quite often, the um the road turns to shingle, and there's no lights and all that sort of stuff. But you can see where the reserve starts and where it stops because, um, you know, that's where the white economy is across the road. So it's about weighting yeah. the finances and the regulatory authority towards our way. Well, a lot of the Canadian listeners are going to be surprised that you have reserves just like we do in here in Canada, in New Zealand. Yeah, our number is 873. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ours ours here in Kamloops is uh, eight or 688. And so each, six, eight, each eight. one of the reserves are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? The challenge for where our tribe is going, though, is... Um, we're just going to assert our customary rights off reserves as well. I just don't see why we have to play the game anymore. Um, you know, quite often, if we buy the land, what are they going to do? If yeah. we do things on the land, yeah. I'm quite interested in pushing our customary authority on our lands and just seeing what the Crown's actions will be because they are required to cooperate. And that puts us on a on on a balance sheet of cooperating as well. But we'll do it formally with them. That's why you need the institution. Um, we just we just lost a water bottling case here, Manny. And oh. the the judge said you've lost the water bottling case because your district plan, you know, your tribal plan, did not did not say you're against water bottling. <laughs> and, mm. and we're looking at them thinking, right, we're going to play this game. So we will make clear things in the future. And we'll just assume. No kidding. It. Yeah. Yes. No, that's, uh, that's, that's an incredible story. How big are the reserves? Oh, nowhere the size of yours. Our reserve at home is um, 2,600 acres. And how many people is that? Back then, there were 1,200 people on that reserve. Um, originally, they all had their own individual title. It was really interesting. So everyone had their own title. But then we had this thing called the Māori Land Court and the Māori Land Acts, and they decided that they knew better, um, which led to multiple titles, and it's just created a mess. But... After we went, met with Manny back in 2013, I think, Manny, um, yeah. we came back home because we'd been working on this anyway, and we've rezoned our village where um, we can subdivide our land regardless of Crown or Māori title, and we can have individual ownership, which means you can get a mortgage and all those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? One of the things I, you know, again, because of what's happening with COVID-19 here, I started thinking about the linkage between epidemics and how colonization took root, you know, yeah. with our history 
I think that uh, the smallpox epidemic had a direct result in in terms of you know lowering the numbers uh, we had uh, here in BC by at least two thirds and allowing uh, settlement to take place a lot easier because we were in a weakened position. And a lot of our presentations to the federal and provincial governments uh, subsequent to those uh, epidemics were, were with full knowledge of what happened. And, uh, you know, we were restating why we needed to be able to have the jurisdiction to look after ourselves, uh, asking for doctors, asking for you know the jurisdiction we once had is that is that uh, something that's that happened in in New Zealand and between the Maori and the and the British crown the biggest hit that we took was the measles and the flu and i think the reason was that smallpox had burnt itself out by the time it got to New Zealand near australia because you know the distances were big plus the distances between our villages you know, walking is quite large as well. So we weren't really hit by smallpox. Um, really, it was influenza and the measles that forced the tribes to a standstill because it was the period of the musket wars of that period. Um, so to some extent, those diseases just forced us to a standstill. We're an armistice with each other. Um, but later on, about the 1890s, our population's declining. That's when they talk about softening the pillow for the Māori, you know, so that we could die on a soft pillow. Um, hmm. And that was where the domination of the colonial system really did come in strong. And politically, our people were just weak, and they accepted a lot that they didn't have to. Um and that's where our people went to spiritual movements, you know, the prophecies. I don't know if you had them up there, but the prophecy movements became quite big here. Old Testament stories, um, those stories start to dominate. Yeah, the, the, the development of the, the Maori religion at that time with, I guess, Christianity with a mixture of Maori. They, yeah. They had that uh, on the prairies and obviously throughout the Americas as well, uh, with the ghost dance and and uh, others, uh, you know, trying to bring back, uh, you know, the the cultures we formerly had, and and the same, you know, the concepts happened with us with the soft pillow as a lot of uh, uh, the early colonial governments felt that we were going to be a dying culture and therefore didn't need to you know, to have all of the protections and everything that that we felt we should have in terms of jurisdiction. And I think that's the, um, really what happened then is that the colonial system just dominated and our ancestors just had to bear it. But what I've noticed since the 1970s, and particularly after our settlement, um, and 20, 20 years after our settlement, we're just not prepared to listen to white nonsense um to some extent i call it the white death machine because that system did destroy a lot of traditional institutions you know it just removed them extinguished them but the tribe still re retains its understanding of sovereignty and who it is so that's where it is and i think i think we understand the political, the relationship between politics and finances and economics now better. 
and that's where we'll be heading there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the idea that the economy is open, it's a free market, and it's level is just nonsense. It's weighted to a particular group. Um, and I noticed this when I go through the United States. It was really quite interesting. Oh, that trip we did with you, Manny. Mm -hmm. um, what I noticed in the United States is their economics are weighted towards a white power elite, and they really don't care about indigenous peoples, black or poor white trash. They don't care. Um, yeah. It's, it's about elite, select power dominance and economic dominance. It has nothing to do with the free market, open, you know, open economies. In the end, the politics determines the economy and who benefits. Well, I, I couldn't get over it, Manny, how, how the crow we left on that reservation, there's no economic institutions there. Nothing. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And then they can't even, you know, the, what resources they've got, they can't bring it to market. I mean, the whole Industrial Revolution is built around um, white, well, the United Kingdom and the United States using coal to power the Industrial Revolution. And now that these tribes want to use coal, they're prohibited for a moral, environmental reason that they have to that they have to carry. You know, it's a burden they carry, as opposed to the whole Western world that that exploited the resource to gain wealth. That's incredible. Well, one of the, one of the things that I've always cherished about, uh, you know, the, not only the personal working relationship we've got, but you know, the, the 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 thought that that those of us that are, you know, a lot of people, and I've said this before, you know, they look at the Pacific Ocean as something that divides us. I always look at the Pacific Ocean as something that's really united us, and and there's no clear clearer demonstration of that uh, Tamari than the working relationship we've developed and will continue to develop because one of the things that's really important to demonstrate is is the fact that indigenous people around the world can work together for a better future for our people and and the fact is is that we can and we have to we do and um i think the other thing that we have to accept is what binds us is the commonwealth framework because I think our systems are essentially the same and we understand the same problems. Well, I guess uh, I guess we should wrap up. Take care, Manny. Nice to hear from you too, Greg. Patuch. Hi, oh, hi, 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 hi,